And, you know, from a science standpoint, if you think about the, how hard it is to do research on exercise and nutrition, especially nutrition and diet, um, you're not going to find a whole bunch of really, um, like with a strong amount of evidence saying that, well, after 40, you should do this. But as a dietitian, I have found that after 40, I have to pay closer attention to what my body is telling me. So in my teens and twenties and thirties, sure injuries, whatever, you know, but so in my twenties, I just exercised and you know, everything was awesome. In my thirties, I started doing triathlon and Ironman and everything was mostly awesome. I knew I was not, you know, a fast person, but that was fine with me. But then I found I was going to get, you know, more, um, deeper massages, visiting a chiropractor. So it was like the first of, oh, I see now that the scoliosis I've known I had my whole life is actually making a difference. And so, you know, I changed, started doing different kind of workouts and, but still not feeling age yet. Now over 40, after two children, all of a sudden now it's like, if you get an injury, you're going to own it. You keep it for a long time. I can't get away with anything anymore. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you heard is absolutely right. Once you get over the age of 40, uh, my goodness, things start changing. Well, that was Dr. Jenna Bell. Jenna Bell is a PhD registered dietitian nutritionist who is a specialist in nutrition for performance. Now, in our conversation today, what I want you to listen to, not only we, we go into some of the nitty gritty details, we go into the, some of the science and nutrition, because remember, there is a science and nutrition. Food interacts with their body. We all have different ways. Each of our bodies will interact with food slightly different based on how our body, based on how hormones, based on the endocrine system, based on our digestive system, but based on each of our bodies interacts with food. That's why it can be really tough to be beholden to the research. And in the conversation today, Jenna and Bell and I talk about the difference between research and you just heard her mention anecdotal. Well, research is when you have control, when you have a control and you can sit there and understand or observe what happens when you change some of the variables. If we do this, what happens? If we do this, what happens? Whereas anecdotal is I did this and I experienced this. When it comes to nutrition, we have to be able to look at the source and say, was this based on research or was this based on anecdotal evidence? There's not anything wrong. I mean, there are flaws with research. You know, anecdotal evidence can provide some really interesting insights if you track it and monitor it right. The point being, when it comes down to nutrition, there is no right way. Everybody's going to have a slightly different approach, but what we should have what we should have is a specific approach or a specific you know, kind of philosophy. Because when we look at what nutrition is, nutrition is simply supplying energy to the body. The important thing, though, is finding out the right amount of nutrients, the right type of nutrients, the right amount of nutrients for your needs. And that's exactly what I talk about on this episode of All About Fitness. Jenna Bell is a PhD and an RDN. An RDN is a registered dietitian nutritionist. Now, an interesting little note in her PhD work, you know, Ms. Bell, Dr. Bell, actually studied under Dr. Len Kravitz, a previous guest on All About Fitness. So that's one of the kind of the cool things is Dr. Kravitz has been in the industry for so long that he's mentored experts like Dr. Bell, who is now out there helping us understand how nutrition and exercise and all that come together to help you get the results that you're looking for. On this episode of All About Fitness, it is a lot of fun to catch up with Jenna Bell, a PhD, an RDN, and the Senior Vice President and Director of Food and Wellness 
for Pollock Communications. What are you doing from June 26th to 30th? Well, if you're smart, you're going to join me and a number of other fitness industry leaders at the Idea World Convention in Anaheim, California. From June 26th to 30th on 2019, we are going to be there talking all things fitness, nutrition, and behavior change. If you want to up your fitness game, and folks, it does not matter. You could be a professional, you could be an instructor, a trainer, or if you're just a fitness enthusiast and you want to see the Super Bowl of fitness, you too can join us at the Idea World Convention. You'll get firsthand best practices on power and effective workout programs for one-on-one and groups. You'll learn groundbreaking movement, nutrition, and behavior training strategies that can help you take your fitness professional game to the next level. You'll learn how to lead, manage, sell, market, and grow a bulletproof fitness business. And finally, you'll be able to learn how to use and implement the newest technology and fitness tools in your practice. There'll be a link down below in the show notes and listen to the end of the podcast for a special code that'll allow you to save $30 on this year's Idea World. That's Idea World 2019, June 26th to 30th in Anaheim, California. You can pick them up, you can carry them, you can lift them, you can swing them, you can throw them, you can do core training with them, metabolic conditioning with them, high intensity interval training. Whatever you want to do with movement, you can do it with a sand bell, you can do it with soft bells, or you can do it with a vest by Hyperware. Hyperware makes some excellent products that allow you to move with extra resistance. Resistance training is what makes a difference in your body, folks. If you want to get stronger, you got to pick up something heavy. If you want to burn a few calories, you pick up something heavy a little bit faster, but do it safely. Whatever your fitness goal is, Hyperware makes a product that can help you achieve it. That's H-Y-P-E-R-Ware.com. Hyperware, makers of the vest, one of the best vests out there on the market. You can use a weighted vest that stays close to your body, and you can do a ton of cool body weight exercises with it with a little extra weight. Hyperware also makes sand bells and soft bells, very unique weights. I love them. I use them in my book, Smarter Workouts. Because they work. Use code AAF10. That's AAF10 to save 10% on the purchase of any Hyperware product and go to hyperware.com to check out their entire catalog. It's a platform, it's a balance tool. You can do a ton of different exercises on it. Guys, you've been listening to me talk about the TerraCore. You've been hearing TerraCore ads on All About Fitness. Well, I've got great news for you. You. I went to the folks at TerraCore. The code AAF, I changed the code. The code AAF now gets you a 25%. That is 25, 25% savings on a TerraCore. Use code AAF to save 25% on a TerraCore. What is TerraCore? Don't go to TerraCoreFitness.com. That is TerraCoreFitness.com. T-E-R-R-A CoreFitness.com and check out one of the coolest products in fitness. See why Men's Health voted it one of the top fitness at home products that you should have for your workouts. Check out TerraCore Fitness on Instagram to see some amazing tricks. Again, TerraCore now is 25% off through All About Fitness. Use code AAF to save 25% on the purchase of a TerraCore. I'm Pete McCall, the All About Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jenna Bell, who is an RDN. And I know this is a relatively new designation, Jenna. Can you give us a little bit of background 
on like what an RDN is and how that might differ from what people might call nutritionist? Hi, yes. So registered. Yeah, just jump right into it. Sorry about that. Sometimes I just jump right into it. That's okay. I'll do a whole intro. They've already heard our whole intro. And so for listeners, it's just, it's like, bang, let's get right into it. Perfect. Well, a registered dietitian, we've been around for a while. Um, it's a, it's the same curriculum. Basically there's requirements in a curriculum of nutrition for individuals to, to participate in an internship, um, anywhere from a six to 12 month program and sit for an exam that is nationally recognized, uh, registration. And it's similar to, you know, fitness professionals, personal trainers, they, they can attain certifications, but the difference is, is this is actually a license. And so it's recognized across the country. Um, the N was added, oh gosh, what was it? Like a few years ago now, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics updated their name from the American Dietetic Association and added nutrition uh, nutritionists to the end of RD because consumers were asking for clarification on what's the difference. And the only difference really is that um, nutritionist is not you don't have you don't have to go through specific qualifications. So you um, nutritionist doesn't have specific schooling. You can be a licensed nutritionist in that which case you did go to school, but a nutritionist, especially um, in the states that are a little bit looser on licensure, such as like California, um, you could wake up tomorrow and decide to be a nutritionist. So Hmm. That's kind of so. Wait, my qualifications are more than having six pack abs and having a large Instagram following. You You are for sure if you have that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, but the reason why I ask that is because you see so many people out there who promote themselves as quote unquote nutrition experts. Why is it so important that somebody work with an RDN if they have questions about the proper nutrition? You know, I think this is an excellent um, question and topic area. You know, and the thing is. I'm not mad at people that have um, acquired a huge following because of the information that they provided, because obviously they are resonating with the consumer. Um, and so that is, that's positive for where they're coming from. I think the downside is, is that you, there's no guarantee that it's um, safe or scientifically based or if it's going to be effective. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, Sometimes it can be dangerous, um, you know, if someone provides recommendations to someone not realizing that they're taking a certain medication and then, then there's an interaction, um, or it can just be ineffective. But I think that nutrition is a tough area because we all eat and we all have our own stories. And, you know, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but, you know, we're in the day and age of, of testimonial and personal um, evaluating your individual needs. And, and so... While it is important, you know, registered dietitians are going to be your first choice because they have had an education that you can feel good about and that you can trust. Um, but I understand how um, a, a good six pack can um, make people want to say, "How do you, how do you do that?" You know, that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, you stop someone on the street if I like their haircut. Why wouldn't I do it if I like their their abs? You know. Well, that's that's actually. I want to. I want to stay with that because we were talking for listeners. Uh, Jen and I realized that we're we're about the same age. We both graduated college about the same time, <laughs> and uh, you know, I've talked about oh, pretty openly about uh, being in, in my mid forties. As we get into our mid forties, what changes about nutrition? Because I, 
and re- let me ask you this question a different way. I think for people in our mid forties, the focus should be less on appearance. I.e., I drive a minivan. I don't really need to worry about six pack abs right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where, but for people that are in their forties and fifties, what changes about nutrition if they really are interested in in maintaining the physique as so, they get older? Yeah, I love this topic because it's it's one. It's like the first time in my life that my education and my nutrition has a really huge personal application. So my, this is not a scientific, this is anecdotal, what I'm providing it based on my experience as a, as a nutrition professional, but also a human, um, you know, there are nutrient needs throughout our lifespan. We do have some research that shows that there may be hormonal shifts. Um, some of the large data and clinical trials shows though that large groups of people can override this. So you can minimize calorie intake, looking at increasing your energy expenditure, Um, there may be issues with absorption and protein may become more important as we get into like our real, our older years, you know, 70 plus. Um, and you know, from a science standpoint, if you think about the, how hard it is to do research on exercise and nutrition, especially nutrition and diet, um, you're not going to find a whole bunch of really, um, like with a strong amount of evidence saying that, well, after 40, you should do this. But as a dietitian, I have found that after 40, I have to pay closer attention to what my body is telling me. So in my teens and 20s and 30s, sure, injuries, whatever, you know, but so in my 20s, I just exercised and, you know, everything was awesome. In my 30s, I started doing triathlon and Ironman and everything was mostly awesome. I knew I was not, you know, a fast person, but that was fine with me. But then I found I was going to get, you know, more um, deeper massages, visiting a chiropractor. So it was like the first of, oh, I see now that the scoliosis I've known I had my whole life is actually making a difference. And so, you know, I changed, started doing different kind of workouts, and but still not feeling age yet. Now, over 40, after two children, all of a sudden now, it's like if you get an injury, you're going to own it. You keep it for a long time. I can't get away with anything anymore. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm the same person. I still like at the birthday parties, I get on the gymnastics equipment because I can, and I like to, but, um, it's, it's just, we have to listen to ourselves more. So it's almost like, I feel at this point, it's less about, I mean, I don't want to say it's less about science. I'll get so much, so many emails about that, but it, it, you have to be really focused on how you are feeling and what works for you. Well, I think that's such an important thing, and that brings me – well, the one thing I noticed looking at your background, and since you brought up triathlon, I want to ask you this question. It's a little bit a little bit of a sidebar here, but given your background, you've done a couple Ironmans, you've written a book, and you do a lot of public speaking. Which is harder, <laughs> completing an Ironman, writing a book, or standing in front of an audience talking about nutrition? Huh. Right. Okay, writing a book is is only hard if you're a procrastinator, which it is for me. Um, speaking in front of an audience is – um, the easiest thing for me, I, you know, I used to get in trouble in elementary school for quote, trying to be the center of attention. Um, and I think I've thought about it before. I I thought, you know, the only people I've ever really wanted to impress were like mostly my dad, you know, or my parents. So if they're not there, it's not really a big deal. Um, so public speaking, I could iron man, during the race, it's training that's hard. It's uh, waking up every day and making sure you get the right workout. And especially if you are like me and, you know, secretly 
you know, tear, partially tear your hamstring and you don't do anything about it. And it's, um, so I found that Ironman was a really good test because so academically, professionally, these are things that I've enjoyed and I've done fairly well with. Um, but riding a bicycle really fast up a hill, I'm going to be in the back of the pack and, and that's really demoralizing. And so it's like this, um, you know, forward motion, if you're not good at it, it really is, um, it's a mind game. And so I actually think an Ironman is harder. Well, that, that does make sense. You know, and I'm somebody that's never even attempted that. My swimming is I can swim just long enough to stay, uh, stay afloat and, and <laughs> hopefully, hopefully be saved. But that brings up the next question because you're, you're really, your expertise is in nutrition for, you know, performance for athlete mm-hmm. athletics. What is, what's the difference? I mean, if I, if somebody's training for an Ironman or somebody's training for an activity, how does the, the need for nutrition change to match the activity they might be training for? Um, I, you know, you can't ignore it when you are training for something specifically, you can't ignore your nutrition. So, you know, when you're exercising, even if it's, you know, or you're a frequent ex- exerciser every day, you push yourself, um, you might be able to get away with, you know, like, a not eating very well right after your workout or, um, having, you know, insufficient breakfast, but if you are Ironman training, you're probably doing two workouts a day. So your next workout is going to be really hard to, to perform, um, to optimize your performance. And if you're not, if you haven't eaten well, so it's almost like you can't, you can't avoid it. You, you, you can't ignore it. It will improve. You know, I used to do some work with some of the professional triathletes, um, with power bar and Peter Reed is like a three time Ironman champion from Kona. And he said that like the difference between being an age grouper and a world champion was proper nutrition and recovery. And I think that that's, that's really it. You have to eat, um, for, for training purposes. And then you start looking at things like nutrient timing and you start thinking about protein before bed and you start thinking about how much carbohydrate or what's the, um, you know, how, how quick will the absorption be with this particular carbohydrate? You start to look closer and think, well, maybe this type of protein, maybe I should look at whey because I do know that the leucine is going to increase protein synthesis. So you become more mindful and it doesn't mean that you can't do this if you're not competing. It, it's more like nutrition becomes important if you actually have um, progressive goals in your in your exercise. And the one question that comes up, and, and again, I am not a, a nutrition expert, and, and I, I'm one of these fitness folks that I really try to stay in my lane. Meaning, I understand a little bit about it from an energy you know energy in standpoint because exercise is all about energy output, right? Energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. What's the danger? You know, because I've, I've my understanding is is it can really foul up the endocrine system if I start increasing my exercise volume, like I'm training for a marathon or like I'm training for a triathlon, and then I start reducing my nutrient intake or I try to start cutting calories. Because the reason why I ask this, I think a lot of people will sign up for a marathon or sign up for a triathlon thinking this is going to help motivate me to lose weight. I'm going to sign up and train for this as an effort to lose weight. And so while their mileage might be – while their volume is building and while their training you know, amount of training load is increasing – you know, what I've seen and what I've heard anecdotally is people will start reducing their caloric intake. How does that affect the body? And is that a good idea? Yeah, this is like the, the million dollar question, right? And so at the beginning of your question, talking about if you're marathon training and you're increasing your activity substantially, how does nutrition, um, you know, how is that going to, what does your nutrition need to do to meet the demands of your, your training? So, you know, there's some research and some, you know, Asker Yukendrup is one of the researchers out of England that talks a lot about, he's like the premier endurance 
um, re, uh, researcher. And he says, and we've talked about to him about this before. He doesn't believe that he doesn't believe in overtraining. There's no overtraining. There's only poor recovery. And I think that if you're going to amp up your marathon or your workouts to, to reach a goal, um, and you, you decrease your calorie or your nutrient intake, you might experience deficiencies. Um, when we stress the body, you know, B vitamins, magnesium, um, those are going to, we, we have an increased need for, for those. We, you know, every time you exercise, there's an inflammatory response and you can look at some of those inflammatory proteins like C reactive protein. And when they, if they check it after a hard workout in your bloodstream, it will look like you had a heart attack because it is the same response. Um, now that's not to say that exercise is bad for you by any stretch because, you know, simplistically looking at it, um, you can't, get tougher if you didn't get stressed, you know, you can't, you can't have improvement. So, you know, making sure that you're eating enough, but it does get tricky when you are adding, um, the desire to lose weight, which is totally legit that someone would want to take on a marathon and to lose weight. I think that's an awesome idea. The problem is more so I found for women than for men is that their appetite exceeds their training. And I remember this on like my first long run, I did 23 miles. And, um, like I said, I, I'm a, not a very fast runner. I'm, I'm pretty slow. I used to joke with Josh Cox and he's, he would go watch like Lord of the Rings after a marathon and I'd still be running. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, after that marathon, my um, running partner and I, who's actually now my husband, um, went and got Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so we ate it, and then we looked at the calories, and we had consumed more calories than we had actually expended during our run because we thought that we deserved it, you know? And that's uh, neither here nor there about my nutrition choices. But what it means is that sometimes your appetite is going to be far greater than your um, – than your than when you would actually expended. So it does become a tightrope walk walk where you're trying to balance having enough nutrition, enough carbohydrate, enough, you know, to support your workout, enough dietary fat so that your body functions normally, enough protein to protect your immune system and help to maintain lean body mass, especially if you're running, because that's harder to do. Um, so, and then also decreasing calories. So I think that it's, um, it's about, you can de decrease calories. You just have to really clean up the food, you know, <laughs> not that there's a real definition for that, but I think you, your listeners understand you have to be very specific about what you eat. You want nutrient dense foods. You're not doing a lot of wasted. You cannot replace a meal with a bag of Cheetos. Um, I'm not saying you can't have those, but you know, you have to be mindful of your nutrient intake and then, um, you know, it's the add-ons that will affect your ability to lose weight. Well, and what I want to ask you about, and, and some of this might be a little bit uh, rudimentary or foundational, and, and but I think this is important. I want to talk specifically about um, the macronutrients in relation to exercise. And we can whether somebody's training for an event like an Ironman or somebody just enjoys, like you mentioned earlier, um, you know, before I hit the record button, that, that you really enjoy hard workouts. You know, when you look at somebody's training really hard, two maybe four days a week. What role does protein play? What what role does protein play in supporting the training? And, and you know, I like your premise that there's no overtraining, just poor recovery. So, what role does protein play in the whole component during the post exercise recovery period? 
So I think that, you know, for all of the macronutrients, it's about, there's a few things, they all have a few things in common. They're about replenishment, they're about protection, and they're about energy. Um, For protein, their protective mechanism is helping to protect, you know, normal bodily functions, our ability to maintain our fluid balance, our, um, the pH in the body, um, maintain lean body mass, and then build lean body mass. So if you're doing a workout where it's you're, you're pressing, pushing the weight, even if it is, you know, a high intensity interval workout, or maybe you prefer CrossFit and whatever you need to give the body, you know, the, we all talk about, you know, the building blocks. So the amino acids, the building blocks to actually build that muscle. And part of that too, will help with repairing any damage that's done during exercise, because obviously everybody that's listening, that's ever exercised is aware of, is probably familiar with the um, feeling of being sore, you know, and protein is something that's going to help the body repair. Um, You know, there are other things though that do help with repair as well. So it's not just protein. So it's like, even you're looking at like the nutrients found in watermelon are going to help the the amino acid in watermelon is going to help repair um, after and decrease, you know, soreness. So it can, it's, there's a, every macronutrient and micronutrient has certain um, benefits, but for protein, it really is about um, supporting the, you know, protecting the body and helping you repair and build muscle. Um, as far as the nutrient timing of it, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzier. Um, there doesn't, there's no detriment to having protein before a workout, but it's not super clear if protein before your workout is going to, um, change your performance, but there is some evidence that protein before your workout or even during will help you get a jump start on recovery. So you actually might have, you're supplying the, the tools necessary to have a, a, a good recovery, um, um, following your exercise. And I don't know if I noted, but you know, also your immune system will be, um, it helps your immune function too, to have sufficient protein so that you don't get sick from, you know, overtraining or just training at all. Well, and I want to, before I ask you about the next one, carbohydrates, can you explain, because this is a term that, that, that I'm familiar with, but listeners might not be, especially listeners who maybe don't live in the world of performance training, but what exactly is nutrient timing? So nutrient timing, I think John Ivey, the researcher, I think he's at a, he's in Texas. I think he kind of um, started this investigation, his area of expertise or his area, his lab focuses um, was focused primarily on protein ingestion. And he was finding that there are benefits to, um, you know, for muscle accrual, um, they, they were affected by your circadian rhythm. So different times of day to be a better time to feed an active body. Um, and so nutrient timing on one hand is based on the entirety of your day. And that's where some of the the research came from where having protein or adding, you know, providing yourself with amino acids before you go to bed, if you're an active person may actually help with your recovery. And, you know, I want to be real clear about recovery. Maybe the word is not accurate because it's actually preparation for your next workout. So it's not just about, you know, fixing what you just did to damage yourself. It's about being ready for your next exercise bout. So if ever you go out to exercise and you think I'm never going to do this again, then don't even worry about it. You don't even have to eat anything important. So, um, the other component of nutrient timing is being prepared with having adequate stores. So that's where discussions about hydration come in, um, and carbohydrates, 
you know, running on empty, if you're doing an endurance sport, um, anything, I always think anything that exceeds 60 to 90 minutes is you're not going to perform, perform as well as you'd like to, if you have insufficient carbohydrate stores, if you're, you know, feeling like you're going to hit the wall or your blood sugar is too low. Um, and that's not to be confused. And that's even for, you know, people that are, you know, warriors at the gym, um, doing like, you know, those tough classes. If you know what a burpee is, then yes, you do need to have some carbohydrate, but probably not as much as, you know, it's, it's not, um, you can probably get away with a workout, not feel that great, but not fall on your face. Um, so that's the before. And then also nutrient timing is what to eat during. So while you're using fuel, what should you be replacing? Um, and that's you typically with carbohydrate, there's some data that shows that protein will again, help you prepare for the next workout, even if you consume it during activity. And then after, um, during the recovery phase, your, your body's primed to absorb carbohydrate and absorb glucose, um, to replenish any lost stores. The more you exercise, the more carbohydrate you can, um, save, you have more glucose transporters in the body. So right after you work out, your body's like, Hey, give it to me. I'll save it. So it's almost like, it's like saving them for, you know, it's, it's like good savings. It's like paying yourself first is eating carbohydrate after a workout. It's not going to make you, it's not going to go to body fat. Your body is like ready to, to store it for carbs. Um, and then again with the protein, you know, I haven't mentioned the word fat and you do actually have like lipid deposits in your muscles that can be exhausted during, um, law, you know, high duration, um, exercise or long duration exercise, but it's been right now, at least, I don't know what the, you know, if like the preliminary studies or I'm sure that there's some really cool science going on right now, um, in labs that isn't really talked about yet about, you know, looking at the role of fat, but so far it just seems to be, you want adequate fat to make sure that you don't, um, so that you can save carb carbohydrates depending on the intensity of your exercise um, so that you don't use protein as fuel and to um, replenish the intermuscular lipids is um, important, but it's hard to link that to a performance gain. So well, I want to, I want to pause on that for just one second about because that was going to be my next question is if, if people, cause carb, we know this carbs get a bad rap and it, I don't think it's really yeah. carbohydrates themselves. What's that? Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. And it's not necessarily carbohydrates themselves. It's just is it's the type of carbohydrate. Now, what's the danger if somebody's going to be doing a long run or a long workout, like more than ninety minutes, or for instructors doing back to back classes? What's the danger of limited glycogen or limited carbohydrate intake during a longer workout? How does that affect protein? And what does the body do with protein if it doesn't have adequate energy during a workout? Okay, so the first thing with the gluc the glycogen being limited. Um, you're typically what will happen is that you will have to, you know, um, back down to an intensity that your body can handle given the depletion in carbohydrates. So, you know, fuel utilization is not this directly related to, you know, it's, it's always hard for people to, to get straight in your, in your mind. So when you burn fat, these are air quotes, you see, um, as fuel during exercise, you're oxidizing fat and you're using it as fuel to, to move forward or do whatever it is you're doing. Um, it doesn't mean that your adipose tissue is shrinking while you're out there. Um, if you use carbohydrate as fuel, it means that your exercise is probably a bit higher of a higher percentage of carb used for fuel 
it means that your intensity is higher. So you're running faster, you're pushing harder. Um, and while you'll be using more carbs than fat, it doesn't mean that you're losing less body fat because you actually will burn more calories based on liters of oxygen consumed. So you want to burn more calories if you're looking at weight loss by increasing the liters of oxygen consumed to sustain your activity. Um, so limited glycogen, one thing there. So so the first thing is that you'll have to slow down. The second thing is um, you're going to feel like crap. So if anybody's ever hit the wall on anything, it can cause nausea. Um, so for my dissertation that we were talking about before, I did exhaustive exercises in my subjects, bless their heart. Um, and so what they were experiencing a lot of times is um, they actually – vomited. So that was cool, right? To have like a bucket next to the exercise that you're going to do because I was draining them. So they were running out of, um, they, they couldn't continue at the pate at the, at the intensity they were at because of limitations in, in their blood glucose. Um, now beyond that, so if you have limited blood glucose, um, so you're not going to perform well and it might mean you fall over or throw up. Um, but you will also start using protein as fuel. And while protein is a source of fuel, which is nice to have, um, I would think of it kind of like, um, the backup, like the, uh, the, that you don't actually, you don't want it to be part of your cash flow. Um, you don't want to use protein as fuel during exercise. You want to save it as your, as the protective, um, and muscle building function that it's supposed to provide. So you don't want to have to, um, incorporate protein into gluconeogenesis during activity. So that's why we just want to have sufficient. I think that where carbohydrate carbohydrates get a bad name is, is like you said, different types, but a type is a tough word because, um, sometimes you do want a simple sugar. You do want a monosaccharide to be absorbed more quickly so that it's available to you. Um, also, I think carbohydrate food sources, they vary drastically. So the nutrients found in bread are not the same nutrients found in bananas, but yet they're both carbohydrate sources. Um, there are different um, components of carbohydrate containing foods. If you think about cereals and grains and pulses, which are beans, legumes, lentils, peas, um, chickpeas, they have different kinds of starches that make them up some of which you can't even digest. So they're called resistant starch. And that's a positive thing because they are not only finding that that will feed good bacteria in your gut, but they will actually, um, they don't provide, they don't cause, they don't add calories the same way. So carbs is, it's confusing. Um, I think that to take a simple view of it, you know, like, because who in, the world would want to like count grams and calories and oh wait I remember who personal trainers personal trainers like to do that a lot. <laughs> but, and that's where but that, but but I think that's I mean because you're right people get I think over inundated with that and I think we get too I think we get too over focused on that you know is is we get so focused on the appearance component of fitness that we forget about the overall healthy lifestyle and the healthy balance component. Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to ask you about, you mentioned earlier that you've done a survey, you've participated in a survey of RDNs and, and what the annual trends are. What have you found? Because we know that there are certain trends out there and, and I don't want, I'll let you talk about like, what are the current trends? And, and then I'd be interested in some of your feedback on, are these trends worth really looking into or are they just kind of a little pie in the sky and something that's better, better left off to, uh, you know, to the nether reaches and then better left mm -hmm. off to just being ignored. 
Yeah. You know, it's, um, so I work at Paula communications and we're seven years now into doing, to having a partnership with today's dietitian. Um, all of our clients are food or health and wellness brands. Um, and so like, for example, I mentioned pulses, the American pulse association is one of our, one of our clients and I have other, you know, I'll give you my, my full disclosure if you want it, but, um, so we put together to help educate ourselves and I'll help um, even provide information for our clients. We do an annual survey. We know that the front line of nutrition are the registered dietitian nutritionists, and they are the ones that are talking to people face-to-face, just like a, a trainer would do, and also tapped by the media. And now with so many dietitians actually moving into media positions on their own, so actually you know, Toby Amador is actually writing for us news and world report. Um, and there's many, many registered dietitians on, you know, editorial boards. Um, they're speaking to larger groups now as well. And then, you know, even educating peers and talking. So we started doing this survey to assess the trends in nutrition for the upcoming year and what the dietitians predict based on what they've heard from consumers. And so this is useful for industry because they, you know, know how to, they, you know, we can be important for innovation, but also for messaging for personal trainers and any healthcare professional. It's essential. And I don't think it's something that we do enough of, which is why I'm actually talking about that a lot at idea, um, at this upcoming world. Um, is that we, we know we need to meet our clients where they are and it would be a lot easier for us to do that if we understood what they were thinking about what's hot and what's not. And so understanding, um, you know, the market research and the trends I think can be really powerful for educational purposes. So for 2019, it's been a very interesting few years. So you know, we're, we used to talk about fad diets, especially for those of us educated in the, you know, the early nineties, it was fad diets, it was Atkins, it was, you know, and then we moved into South beach and, um, and so fad, you know, it implies that it's going to come and go. So who cares? I don't even know why we get so worked up about fads because by definition, it's not here to stay. However, what's changing now is that it's really now about trends. So we've actually moved into, not just like these popular diets, but they're actually sticking around longer. And here's why I, here's what I think is really powerful about that and what's different in today's day and age. So, um, you know, they attribute a lot of it to the millennials that they're seeking a, a, a broader story. They're taking a more holistic approach to their nutrition. There's so many other factors that are affecting that age group um, and why they made the nutrition decisions that they do. And, you know, not to say I am, you know, a Gen Xer and very proud of it, but we are a very, very small generation. So the millennials is the largest generation that's still alive right now. So that's why we care so much about them because we, they have, you know, they're buying stuff. Um, so the trends now are here are sticking around. So here's, but, and here's an example. So this year keto diet rose to the top. So we've got keto, clean eating, plant-based diet. Um, a couple years ago, paleo, paleo was hot and heavy. Um, but it still exists, right. And it's still something that's, that's, um, there are fans, and people that are um, incorporating it into their lifestyle or becoming more paleo in lifestyle. Um, but it's, it's interest. It's changed a little bit because while a low carb or no carb diet is not a novel approach to anything, we've got something interesting going on with the ketogenic diet. And that is 
they have, I, you know, looking, okay. So first research is paying attention. So KetoCon is coming up in soon and it's a conference. KetoCon. Seriously, there's a KetoCon. Yep. <laughs> so they bring together gurus. Okay. So people that have had like anecdotal evidence and, or provide really awesome recipes, but mo- like half of the presenters are scientists and they're, they're going to, um, talk about their research in keto and brain function and immune responses and metabolic risk factors. So I find that interesting because I don't really remember too much attention being made to, you know, there's like a handful of studies um, that, that looked at the an Atkins type of diet, um, but not much further than that. Um, secondly, there's now industry adoption. So keto friendly um, is now kind of holding hands with clean eating, even though, no, there is no definition for clean eating. It's whatever you think it should be. Um, but you know, if we think about it in terms of minimal ingredients, it's one interpretation, no additives, no preservatives, no fillers. That's another interpretation. But if we look at some of the foods that are out there, like we have a client, um, moon cheese. And so they are a low carb. Um, they, they say they're keep, you know, they're, they are keto friendly because they don't provide any carbohydrates, but they also service your clean eating desire, the trend for clean eating, because it's like a chip, but it's just cheese. So like, there's no ingredients to talk about because it's cheese. And it's also, you know, something that's keto friendly. And then we have other keto um, friendly foods too, that are out there. So we look at like the shelves where there's, um, you know, snack packs that now have hard boiled eggs, you know, where, where they, they're, peakish hard boiled eggs. They talk about how, and this is not a client of mine, um, but they have very few ingredients or there's beef sticks. And like, for example, Larissa's beef sticks I found talks about grass fed and no preservatives. So here we've got this like combination of keto and clean eating affecting industry choices. So it's not just that consumers like think it's cool or it's being talked about in the gym. It's actually affecting the direction of science as well as industry. And I just, I think that's that's profound. And I want to keep talking about this for a minute because I find it so interesting. So keto though is even moving. So clean eating, you know, we could debate that all day about whether or not that actually means nutritious. Um, but plant-based is another, um, you know, hot area or hot trend for, for eating patterns. And that is nutrition based. That is one would argue not only is it nutritionally sound, it might be environmentally preferred. Um, so we've really kind of like you can actually like healthify this trend. So keto actually has a whole, uh, you know, an advocacy groups looking at it from a plant-based keto. So it's not just about salami and, and um, bacon. It's actually focused more on how do you have a plant-based diet while also, you know, um, minimizing like following the, the keto preferred um so, you know, there's animal replacements happening at the same time, which is interesting. So it's kind of like this plant-based revolution simultaneously, not keto, but plant-based focus where we're having so many like animal protein replacements. So like non-dairy milk, that category is booming. So, hey, can, I, can, I, can I ask you a question about yeah. that? What the what this freak is up with that? Because Jim Gaffigan actually does a great bit about that. He goes, yeah, there's a new brand new milk out. It's from a cow. You know, he goes into the whole almond milk, pea milk, everything. Yeah. What, why, how, how do you get milk from, from almonds or from peas? What, what's going on with that? And 
why why are we looking for that plant-based substitute if people i i get the fact that people don't want animal products i, I yeah. get that but but why would you have a plant-based substitute to replace something you might not want in your diet i mean that's just where if you could talk a little bit about these different milks I, i'd appreciate learning more about that yeah you know and it's a it's a it's a complex story. So milk, um, is a traditional, you know, dairy source. It's something that entered the, you know, became a, a, I think that because it inserted itself in policy so early on, I think that's where people immediately were, you know, like, what do you mean it has to be in school lunch kind of thing. So it started to get more attention. It has valuable nutrients, riboflavin, calcium, vitamin D protein, um, arguably it's because it is a complete protein. It also, and dairy products have whey. I'm a huge fan of whey as, um, it increases protein synthesis like all proteins do, but it has more leucine. So it actually is going to stimulate the ability of the muscle to create more protein, to synthesize protein. So I think that milk has gotten this, this funny reputation. I remember in, when I first started speaking at idea in 2000, I guess it would have been 2002, 2002 or 2003, you know, milk, um, it's a demonized food. It's polarizing and there's no, like, there's no right or wrong side on this. So, but because it is like that, it opens the door to competition, right? So, um, people are looking for, they don't want to consume dairy products. So there's one reason to consume plant-based, um, an individual might want, um, to make, if they want to, they don't want to tr- consume animal products maybe because of their own personal ethical reasons, or maybe they don't want animal products because there's a sustainability message that resonates with them. And they feel strongly about focused on, you know, other sources outside of, um, dairy. So those are reasons. Um, we've also, the companies that do offer a plant-based milk have also, um, improved their processing so that they're in fortification. So there's now plant-based you know, nut milks that have, um, more, uh, a, you know, a nutrition profile that's similar to a, a cow's milk, more similar, not exact, but more similar, closer to it. And then they also have other nutrients. I think that it's the nutrients that milk supplies and the nutrients that plant-based milk supplies we need, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, we haven't always needed to get it from a single source. Like there's just like, it's not like we ever get deficient in egg yolks, you know, but egg yolks <laughs> provide you a lot of good nutrition that you require, you know? So, um, I, here's the other thing. So why plant-based has become like, it's gotten so hot and heavy. Well, there is now a lot of conversation and even lawsuits around, um, standard of identity for food products. So if you're an almond, why are you allowed to call yourself a milk? And so it's going back to what is the definition of milk? And, you know, this reminds me of other stuff. We love to talk about, you know, what is the true meaning of whatever in this country. So whether it's milk or um, other other things going on now or, you know, calling foods something based on their flavor, you know, like. um, Well, I'm just thinking of ketchup, you know, ketchup being identified by the Department of Agriculture as a vegetable for the purpose of school I mean, it really, I think you, you make some great points. A lot of this is really controlled by industry groups. And I, and I, and that's where I think there's an interesting, I, I like the fact that you're talking about plant-based and because that kind of coincides with all the farm to table 
you know, movement mm-hmm. in, in, in restaurants, right? Is you have now, and I think you, you tapped into it, millennials want better sources of food. And so do you think this is a perfect example of the market reacting to consumer demand? Yes, it is. And I love that you said better sources of food because that is another subjective word there. So, you know, looking at um, what we think is better. So better has been discussed as simple ingredients. It's like supposed to be cleaner. Um, it's supposed to be like peep, like a protein that's better for you. Um, but for those that are sports enthusiasts, I, I don't know why I'm not saying that correctly right now, but anyway, people that work out a lot, um, you know, whey protein, casein and soy would be the perfect blend. If you're going to have an added, um, an additional protein source, um, so better though has a lot of different meanings, but, and the reason I kind of like pointed to that is that consumer demand has been for more plant-based while it is also being, uh, we're demanding simple ingredients. And we love to say, pro, you know, to reduce processed food, which is ridiculous, right? Because like, as soon as you like cut a tomato, you basically just processed it or you made it into tomato sauce processed, um, Toaster. Yeah, no, I love. I love that. So I love. I love that definition of it. You know, I had a. I had a guest on a couple months ago who made the. You know, we we're talking about technology, and he made the point is like, look, a spoon can be considered technology. Right. You know, you have to. You know, when you take a simple definition, as soon as yeah, you're right. As soon as you slice an apple or cut a tomato, technically you, you're you're processing that. Now to take a quick shift, and you haven't mentioned this yet, and I think this is another example of of something that was kind of trendy from a certain population in fitness. And now, I mean, the data on this and the research I've seen is pretty overwhelming, but that's intermittent fasting. The whole idea of going periods of time without eating anything in terms of how that influences the endocrine system. Is this, is this intermittent fasting really something that, that should be – what's the data been showing on, on IF? So, so I have to disclose first off. I love intermittent fasting. I always have. So it came fasting as a benefit came about in the late nineties and they had this, it's like a bio, I can't, I not remember like Walford, I think was the researcher's name. And so they did like an extreme study where they were trying to live in like a, you know, a dome that they didn't need the outside world. Um, and they had insufficient farming, um, results and insufficient food. And so they all were on, they were all fasting. They were all on calorie restrictions and so many measures of health improved. And I'm like butchering that, but it's just like a far off memory for me. But over the years, there's been more data. And so like when I took a immune um, function class in my um, graduate work, you know, from an immune perspective or how we develop cancer, like the less metabolism that takes place, the better. So intermittent fasting becomes interesting again. Um, so it's, you know, I think that if we just kind of like consensus, like blanket statement, um, intermittent fasting seems to have some benefits for some individuals and may have some watchouts um, for others if there's, you know, nutrient deficiencies. Um, it's never going to be the type of um, plan. It's, it's not like there's no cause and effect when it comes to diet. So you're never going to be able to say like intermittent fasting is the best thing. You know, it's never going to be, um, nothing is ever, nothing when it comes to nutrition will ever be the same. Like the, um, sentient, this, the sentitarian diet, um, or the centenarian, um, study that takes place in Massachusetts, um, has for a couple of decades now, they, um, survey people that make it over a hundred years of age. 
And so when I saw him present this data, he said to the group, what do you think was the common denominator? And people are like, um, they ate more vegetables, they exercised, they did this. And the answer is um, nothing. They didn't die. That was it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, I think that intermittent fasting is interesting. And I think it's an interesting way of controlling your calorie intake. Um, cravings are personal and um, appetite is personal as well. So, but testimonial, and if you are one of those people, like I am, that says, you know what, when I just do a little bit of fasting, and I don't mean 24 hours, I'm talking about, you know, 12 to 16, and that includes me sleeping. Um, it does help with my like level of how much I can put in my belly. So, you know, it's, um, but again, right now it's in this like testimonial anecdotal phase. There's a lot of good research, but we don't create consensus, um, in the you know scientific community over 20 studies. It's got to be a lot more, even if they're all peer reviewed. So, um, yeah, so I, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's, if you eat a nutritious diet, um, you know, cause I like to do it, like I mentioned, and I just ate, I do like a, I, I call it like a cooked salad. So at lunch I had, um, a whole, right before we got on the phone, I had a whole green pepper, a whole tomato, a whole onion, um, a couple cups of spinach. And, um, like I saute it with garlic and oil. And then I added steak to it this time and provolone cheese. So I caught like my Philly cheesesteak in a bowl. Um, so what I just did there though, is eat, I ate a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals and protein, you know, to make sure that I'm not going to be deficient just because I, you know, did a little bit of fasting. So. Well, and now I've been, I've been fasting for, for a little bit now and then I'm not going to be eating for another couple hours, but now I'm really hungry. So thank you. Yeah, that, I highly <laughs> yeah. recommend it. It's like the easiest thing to make and it's super fulfilling. <laughs> well, what I, yeah, what I like about it, what, the only thing I've been playing, one of the reasons why I've been playing with IF is really is kind of freeing up time is you, you create some more time during the day. But I'm serious. It's like, cause it's, you know, if you do the food prep for meals in the evening and stuff like that, it's like, okay, I don't really need to deal with breakfast. I can get the kids out the door. I don't need to de- worry about lunch so much. I can really focus on, you know, yeah. I've just found it from, from a, from a scheduling standpoint it becomes somewhat efficient. Yeah. So with all this information, as we're wrapping up, what, you know, cause, cause it's so overwhelming. This is one of the things where I'm somewhat, I don't want to say scared, but I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant to have nutrition experts on even someone with, with, with impeccable qualifications like yourself, because there is so much controversy over this and people, people have beliefs. And I love the fact that you make a point about subjectivity versus objectivity versus the data-driven research. What is, what should people pay? Like, what's your bottom line, you know, Jenna? What is your kind of like your, your one or two bullet points of what people should pay attention to for their personal nutrition? So the first thing, and I say this all the time, and if you've been to any of my sessions at Idea, I say it every time, there are a gazillion different ways to be healthy. And that's what we have to get into our head. So being nervous about nutrition makes sense. If you were just diagnosed with diabetes or you're on dialysis or you have now a condition that's going to be dangerously affected by your nutrient intake. But if you're a healthy individual and active or moderately active or slightly active, there are so many different ways for you to achieve a healthy eating plan. So have fun with it. You know, you don't have to get, I, you know, I think that the most important thing that I live by 
is I try not to, I throw away every grocery list because I don't want to buy the same foods every time I go to the grocery store. So I try to eat different foods all the time. And if that means that every once in a while there's, you know, ice cream in my freezer, it's fine. You know, like I will buy um, Ezekiel bread and then I'll buy that like buttery white bread from Trader Joe's. Um, I always have different grains. I, I think if it's variety, diversity, um, you're going to get all the nutrition you require. If you are gaining weight on your current diet, you need to move more and eat less. And I know that you just like want to punch people when they say that, but um, it's true. You've got to eat a little less. And so if you can do that through doing, you know, you decide you want to do a little vegetarian eating for a while, or you want to do keto or intermittent fasting, that's fine. Pay attention to your nutrients, listen to your body. If you feel like crap, you probably want to do something about it. Um, and you know, I think that we argue about body weight being the right measure. Um, but what are you going to do? You're going to get in an underwater tank in the morning and check out what your body fat is. No, you're not going to do that. So weight is what we have. Like it's our most, it's the easiest measure for us to look at. And, you know, we know that it, it weighs fat and muscle and bone and all the other stuff that go into it. But, um, so I'd say variety, diversity, and, you know, don't get hung up on, that you need something. There is no best food. There is no must have, you know, like I went to a session years ago about calcium and the benefit with um, fat loss. And someone said, well, what if you can't consume milk and you don't have, cause you're lactose intolerant. And the scientist said, well, no big deal. This is just like not a benefit that you're going to have, like move on. I thought <laughs> that was a life changing statement. <laughs> But I, but I think, I mean, that's a, such an important thing because so many people get, I think it's so wrapped up on that and they're always looking for that thing. And that's, mm -hmm. a, I think that's the biggest fallacy in our industry, whether it's nutrition or exercise, people are looking for that quote unquote, one thing that's going to make all the difference when in reality we know, and I'm going to quote Dan John, like, just don't be an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what I've told clients for years is be, my recommendation regarding nutrition is this, is be a good B student. Meaning yeah. you know what you're supposed to do and you know what you're not supposed to do. You know, some days you're going to be 85% and get a B, a solid B. Some days you might get an A minus and do really well. Other days, guess what? You know, you, you might as well play hooky and skip school because it's Easter or Halloween or something like that. And, and you, know, you just know that other things are, are going yeah. on with that. Now, the final thing to wrap up, and, and I like pointing this out to people, is in the, in the large certain, in some of the studies I've seen, when they look at the large population, they look, they, when they follow a large population for a period of time, what I always find interesting is that people who are a little overweight tend to live longer than people who tend to be underweight. You know, is that something that, you know, is having a couple extra pounds? Is that really, is that unhealthy? And, and does that really have a detriment on our life, you know, or on our ability to have an active lifestyle if people are carrying just a few extra pounds? So I think that the takeaway from the, that, that research isn't necessarily that extra pounds are okay. It's that you don't want to be an extreme. So you, if you're, if you're super, super lean to the point of experiencing, you know, malnutrition and, you know, some level of deficiencies, um, and too thin that it's affecting your, you know, your hair, your hair is getting stringier and you're not able to maintain muscle mass and you're fatigued that's a bad side of the spectrum to be. And then the other end of the normal curve would be if you're overweight, you're carrying more body fat than you're capable of moving around. And it's affecting, like you said, your endocrine system, it's causing, um, you know, metabolic disorders and cardiovascular disease risk increases and, 
um, so forth. So it's living in the middle is really where you want to be. And, you know, the extra pounds, it's kind of a funny question, right? And I, I don't know, sometimes I take a lot of these things literally, but I think it makes more sense when you take things literally, like extra pounds, like what does that even mean? Like based on, on what, like if you are healthy, so here's a good example. So I gained a couple extra pounds for a couple of years and my blood pressure went up slightly and so did my cholesterol. And I said to the nurse, and I was still a, you know, a lean person compared to the general population. I said, Oh God, what gives like, and it was a rhetorical question, but how lean do I have to be with my genetics to have normal blood pressure and normal lipids? Well, turns out it's got to be lower than what I was. So in that case, my quote, extra pounds were not good for me. So I would do other tests to, to um, assess the benefit of extra pounds. Probably it's going to be fine, but it might not. I love that answer, though. You you don't want to be at the extremes. I mean, I love that because there's such this, this idea of we have to be skinny. We have to be, you know, this whole nonsense. And one of the things I really like about, one of the things I do like and do really appreciate the millennial generation, you know, as they've really, you know, taken over fitness is that we have this whole body positivity, you know, and people are really being more accepting of that. And and my point of view with this, and the reason I always make the, make the point to people is like, look, I carry a couple extra pounds. Because if there's a zombie apocalypse, mm-hmm. you know what? I got I got three weeks before I really got to worry about really being out of food. Yeah, you know? no, that's a really, really important thing to prepare for. It mm-hmm. is, you know. I mean, hey, I, well, also, but in all honesty, I mean, I live in Southern California. We have fires, we have flood, you know, we have earthquakes, we have all kinds of gnarly stuff. And so, in all reality, you know, I've I've been here for earthquakes when they they say don't call nine one one because we ain't coming to you. <laughs> so I mean, it really is. It's kind of like a real world situation of understanding, like, hey, you know, you got to be prepared for the unknown. Yeah. And, and you know, anyway, having a couple extra pounds, I, that's the way I always try to excuse it. And I, I you don't want to be the complete package either. You don't want to go around making people feel bad about themselves. You don't want to have like the best personality, look good, a six pack abs. No, you keep the extra pounds so that people find you approachable, right? <laughs> you got my secret. That's my secret. How do you know that? That's exactly what I, I don't do want that. to make anybody feel bad because I've got it all. Yeah. And that's and so for folks, that's why I, I don't lift my shirt up and do half naked <laughs> selfies on myself on Instagram. I'm trying to be more relatable to you and the fact that you can be fit without having to worry about all that. Well, Jenna, how can people, because you're going to be speaking at Idea World and, and I know you, you work with Idea regularly, but if people want more nutrition information, I mean, your, 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 your experience, your background is in, is in performance mm-hmm. athletics. You work with triathletes. You wrote a book called Energy to Burn. How can people get more information from you about how they can use nutrition for whatever their goals might be? All right, so this is going to be the real letdown. Um, but I don't, I don't, I work in industry and um, public relations now, and so I focus totally on communication. So the only work that I do, so what I've been doing for you know for educational is come to one of my presentations. So I frequently present at at conferences. I also write a lot of articles for today's dietitian or idea health and fitness. I provide a lot of quotes to media. Um, but yeah, I haven't had, I haven't had a counseling business now in several years, but I can refer you to some amazing people. So you are, anybody is welcome to find me. My, you can tweet me, Jenna Bell, PhD, RD, um, or actually that's the easiest, right? Cause that just, yeah, Twitter. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have links to your, your Twitter, your Twitter handle and, and your website down below in the show notes. So cool. anybody wants, wants to, they can follow up. And also I'll put a link to, uh, to energy to burn down there. If people want to get a little more information about the work you've done. Sure. Yeah. I have to admit though, that book, 
Um, I didn't even have kids. That's 10 year old book now. So careful people. It might, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I'll still put it down there because I mean, but that's the thing, Mm -hmm. but, but, but to that point, but think about that, you know, we talk about new stuff all the time, but if we, if you're applying the science, the science doesn't change, does it? Oh, don't you wish that were the truth? Uh-oh. <laughs> it always changes by design. It's a progressive thing. It's always going to change. You know, like remember when you could only absorb 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour of workout? Well, that's wrong because if you use a mix of maltodextrin and glucose or um, and fructose, you're actually going to be able to absorb closer to 90 grams depending on your intensity. So, yeah. Well, and that's a, that's a perfect example of why I stay in my lane. It's hard enough to remember the changes of how the body responds to exercise. I couldn't even, you know, my, I just don't have the bandwidth of the brain power to keep track of, of all the change. That's why, that's why we need experts like you who do that for us. Well, Jen, I appreciate your time today and I do look forward to, uh, to bumping into it and then working with you down the line. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Two things as I go into the wrap-up here. One, if you want to see experts like Jenna Bell, myself, and a number of other fitness experts at the Idea World Convention, use code PEAT19. That's PEAT19. PEAT19 will save you $30 on the price for Idea World this year. That's June 26th to 30th in Anaheim. Check down below in the show notes. I'll have a link to Idea World. Use code PEAT19 to get all your fitness and, and nutrition learning on this June in Anaheim. Now, number two, we talked about we talked about nutrition. We did a deep dive down nutrition today. If you want to learn more about exercise, specifically if you want to learn more about the exercise and the type of movements that you should be doing to enhance your quality of life, and yes, exercise can do this and slow down the aging process, then pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. It takes my little bit more than 20 years of experience in fitness, and it wraps it all up so you know how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Again, link is down below in the show notes. What I like about this conversation today, though, was coming at it from a slightly different point of view. Now, what I mean by that is about the same time I did this interview, I interviewed Jill Coleman. Jill Coleman is a nutrition expert. She had been a fitness competitor. And that's the interesting thing. That's what I was trying to get to a little bit with with Jenna's conversation was there is a different need for nutrition. There's a different need in nutrition whether you're going to do performance or you're going to do weight loss. And that was what was interesting to me is in speaking with Jill and when you speak with people that do aesthetic or figure or you know bodybuilding anything like that nutrition has a very 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 specific need for that because if you're doing a figure I'm, I'm using figure to mean like bodybuilding whatever if you're doing a figure type show you need nutrition to add muscle you need the proper nutrition to get rid of excess body fat there is a lot of science that goes into that now if you're doing performance you know, so Jill Coleman did figure, and, and that's one type of nutrition. Jenna did triathlon, and performance is a whole different type of nutrition. So think about that for a second. Why, you know, what is your nutrition goal? Is your nutrition goal to fuel performance, meaning you're trying to fuel a specific activity? And you have to look at the needs of act- activity. How long are you going to do it? What's your endurance? What's your strength? What's your power? Are you going to have periods of recoverability? Are you doing a tournament? Will you have rest time between games? Are you doing a long ride or a long run? Will you have a chance to you know, change tempo, change pace? What type of nutrition do you need? You know, There are a variety of different factors in there. There is no right way to approach nutrition. 
That's what, what I hope you get out of some of these conversations is, yes, the science can give us some information. Yes, you know, a study can tell us a little bit about what might happen when you manipulate certain variables with a certain input. You know, yes, anecdotal experience is very valuable, but the fact is there is no panacea. You know, that's an SAT word. Panacea means, you know, cure-all, solves everything. Yeah, see, somebody studied for the SATs years ago and actually remembers a few words. But fitness, you know, but nutrition, there is no panacea for nutrition, depending on what your goal is, just like anything else, right? You know, if you want to get strong, you need to lift weights. If you want to get fast, you need to do speed work. You know, with nutrition, if you want to gain muscle, you need to do one approach to nutrition. If you're trying to burn fat, it's a different approach. So, you know, the point being with all this stuff, it might be better for nutrition rather than trying to follow experts, rather than trying to, you know, read different things on the inner tubes, is work with somebody. You know, work with somebody. And actually, after, you know, doing these interviews with some of these nutrition experts, I'm going to be doing a whole different episode on my experience with nutrition. So I'm going to say that here. I am going to work with some of these interviews that I've been doing. You know, I've been speaking with some of the top nutrition experts and I'm going to be working with one of them. <laughs> Later on, I'll tell you who that is. I will be working with one of the nutrition experts and we'll document what we do. We'll document the process that we go through and the outcome that it affects on me. And you hear me talk about this all the time, right? I am not, this is not one of those podcasts. I am not trying to focus on appearance. The whole point is to try to help you understand how to use exercise, how to use nutrition to enhance your quality of life. That's the point of view I'm coming from. You know, so for myself with nutrition, I'm not trying to get, you know, I'm at 40 something years old, I'm not trying to get six pack abs. But what I would be interested in doing is when I was a full-time personal training and fitness instructor teaching 15 classes a week, I weighed just about 200 pounds, a little bit less than 200 pounds. Well, for the last number of years, I've been a little bit over 200 pounds. So I'm trying to get back to, I'm going to try to get back to my teaching weight. 200 pounds is also my ideal playing weight as a hooker for rugby. You know, if I get, if I was going to play front row, and well, hookers in the front row, but if I was going to play prop, I always added about 10 or 12 pounds because I needed that extra size. But with hooker, I need to be a little bit more nimble, not that I was that quick, um, but I need to be a little more agile around the field. So at hooker, I always played right around 200 pounds. Anyway, that's just me trying to, I'm going to put that out here now on this episode is I am going to be working with the nutrition experts that I've interviewed recently. I'm not going to tell you who yet, but I'm going to do a whole episode about what we do because I haven't decided yet. Am I going to fuel, if I'm going to use nutrition to fuel performance or am I going to use nutrition to try to manipulate aesthetic appearance? But that's how I want you to think about this is what is your goal? What is your specific goal? Because your nutrition needs to match your goal. Just like your exercise needs to match your goal, the same thing is true for nutrition. Hopefully you got a lot out of this episode of All About Fitness. I love the topic of nutrition. We can all get a little bit better at it. Again, my advice is just try to be a good B student. If you're doing the right thing 85, 90% of the time, you will be in good shape. And pun fully intended. Thanks for stopping by, and I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.